Hey, it's Cam. Welcome back to another episode of This Might Be Helpful, and I sincerely hope that it is. Today I am joined by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Dr. Bonnie, I think that you should probably introduce yourself because you have a long list of accolades and achievements and gifts that you have provided this cannabis industry, and I'm really grateful that you're here. Well, thank you for the invitation to uh, talk with you. Um, so my background is as a pediatric trained physician. I trained at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and afterwards uh, went on to be chief resident. And then I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie and went into uh, critical care transport medicine, moving very ill children from certain hospitals to more uh, acute hospitals. I also... Um, uh, then went into pediatric emergency medicine, which I did for about 13 years. Again, adrenaline junkie. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, as I got older and I got married and had a young child at home, the ER lifestyle started to uh, wear thin. And I took some time off and a friend asked me about cannabis. I'm here in California where cannabis um, became medically legal in 1996. We were the first state in the United States, but it wasn't on my radar. I was taking care of sick children. And this was about 2007-ish, 2008, and she asked me about it. I looked into it, decided to look into the scientific literature, and I was like, what? An endocannabinoid system? What? Cannabis can kill cancer? What? How do I not know about this? So as a science geek, I was intrigued. I started reading and I said, okay, I don't want to go back to the ER. Again, it was just not, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't make a long lasting decision not, not to ever go back. It's just at the time with a young child at home, I wanted something a little less demanding. And so I looked into cannabis medicine. I started working in a very nice private practice, seeing patients. And about three months in, I was like, I'm in. This is so interesting these patients are reporting they're getting off opioids, they're getting off benzodiazepines, they're telling me that they're more productive at work, like the exact opposite of what you would think of with cannabis, right? And then the more I supplemented my practice with just reading the scientific literature and learning about the anti-inflammatory properties, the neuroprotective properties, and remember that a lot of that data doesn't like filter down to the practicing physician, so I started to really get into it. And then here I am 15 years later with a practice that focuses mostly on pediatrics at this point. Wow. And what has surprised you most about this medicine, would you say? Gosh, that's such a good question. You know, after 15 years, I'm still surprised when I have a parent who says, I, my child went three weeks without a seizure for the first time. Like I have to constantly say to myself, yeah, you know, it works, right? So, or uh, today I talked to a guy who was on opioids for six and a half years. He's been my patient for a long time. And he's this past year, even with a back surgery, was able to not be put back on opioids and managed his pain with a combination of CBD and THC. Low doses, not a lot. And when you hear about that, you think, wow, you know, this medicine can be really so meaningful. And of course, you know, one thing that I just want to share, though, is some of us are really good responders. Some of us aren't. Some of us are somewhere in the middle. So it's not going to be perfect for everybody because we all have different absorption, metabolism, excretion, all of that stuff. But 
certainly as a harm reduction, as a substitution for uh, harsher medications. And no question that as a kind of one-stop shop, right? Anxiety, pain, sleep with one medicine, that's great. And when we you know, discuss a medicine like this that has that broad network effect across all of these different systems and all of these different domains of you know, a quality life, because that's ultimately what we're, what we're looking for, right? We're not, I think, being evangelists about it being a cure or a silver bullet, but the, the subtle differences as well and how those subtle differences really compound to help facilitate this broad enhancement over the quality of life, that's a really powerful and profound thing. I think so often we're looking for this big, almost like an extremist effect. We're looking for this a Hail Mary of sorts that will help fit everything into place. But what I find more and more is that it can be a functional catalyst because so much of the medicine comes from what you engage in when you feel good enough to engage in those things. And so this, this gentleman that was able to cease opioids, what, what does that look like when it's transferred into how one lives their life? You know, like they're maybe getting a little bit better sleep, some uh, pain relief, maybe some uh, assistance with anxiety and cravings and withdrawals. But what, what does this look like in terms of how it impacts their life as a whole? Well, look, patients report like I have less brain fog. I function better. I'm not quite so cranky. Um, I once had a, a woman bring in her young adult son, a 19 year old. And when I see 19 year olds, I make the parents come because in general, I want to make sure that someone's following my regimen, right? If I'm going to see somebody that age, which actually I'm mostly seeing younger children now. But, and she said to me, I can't have him on opioids. It turns him into a, you know what? She used a foul, you know, language. And I said, well, he doesn't need to be on them. We can try to switch it over. This was a relationship that this kid had with his mom and she's the one saying, I can't have them on these drugs. So what you're thinking about is just day-to-day -day function, just being able to wake up in the morning and feel good, mm -hmm. being able to get that good night's sleep. I mean, I have had people come in and say, if I could just get a good night's sleep, I would everything would change in my life. But what I notice is that people then start to say, well, gee, I slept well. Now I'm going to exercise today. Because mm -hmm. I exercise, I'm going to think about the food I'm eating. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like the snowball effect to feeling well. And one thing I think very important to that, again, it's not magic. What is it doing? Right. In my book, I, I wrote a book called Cannabis is Medicine. I say in there, it's not magic, it's science. So what is the science? Remember that we have this master regulator in our body called the endocannabinoid system. And when it gets depleted from chronic illness, from chronic stress, from chronic sleep deprivation, from a bad diet, from no exercise, all these things can affect it. You can also just have an inherent endocannabinoid deficiency. Like you, so, and so what does that mean? Well, we have these compounds that we make and their job literally is to keep you in balance. The whole idea behind the endocannabinoid system is what we call homeostasis. And I like to liken it to like you're a ship on the ocean and you're going along and the 
everything's nice and then a big wave comes and tips you and your endocannabinoid system goes into action to balance you back it writes the boat and what i see and i'm sure that you can back me up on this when you are dealing with your patients is that patients get kind of this overall vague sense of wellness things are kind of back in balance and that's often why i think in my experience with lots of adult patients so just over the last few years focusing mostly on children but lots of adults in my practice over the years thousands of them many of them say you know i notice i just don't need as much You've, over time these adults they find that they need less oh. and less and is that right. because they are i heard somebody speaking about um you know plant medicines overall in reference to them being teachers and the kind of example they gave is that these plants they offer us insight they offer us a glimpse into how things could be and that glimpse is almost like a an imprint that we can then work towards building and attaining through our own personal practice and personally i've tried this a lot with with meditation and flow states um, meditating with cannabis and then meditating without it and practicing cultivating that mind body state that occurs through that medicine and it really does give you this experiential imprint to work towards and if you do do that work you do need it less and less because that state is more readily attainable because you know we're interacting with systems that are within us it is engaging this cascade of chemistry that we create and so it's not so far-fetched that we can practice towards these states and so rely less on the medicine because it, it is easy for these medicines to become a crutch especially when they make us feel good and i think our medicines ideally should make us feel good i know that that's not necessarily a clinical indication but it is an indication of quality of life that's right. Why should your medicine have bad side? Why do we accept medicine that has bad side effects? And then when we have a medicine that has good side effects, we poo poo it. It's just so silly. Um, I, I think going back to the idea of some of my patients coming back to me on a regular basis saying, well, you know, I'm just not using it as much. I just feel good. Right. And to them, I don't think they think about what's happening in the underlying physiology. But I think about that. And I think what's happening is that their endocannabinoid system tone, which we talk about like almost like muscle tone, it's good. It's where it needs to be. And I liken when people are out of balance with their endocannabinoid system and you're using cannabis and you get back into balance, it's kind of like you've work, been working out. And like you said, you get to a place, to a state where you don't need to kill it at the gym every day in order to stay in shape. Your, your muscles are not going to atrophy if you don't show up for one day. And it's the same thing with the endocannabinoid system. Maybe when you came to it, that endocannabinoid system tank was a little empty. And now that you've augmented that and gotten back into kind of the balanced state, the homeostatic um, place, you just don't need as much. I mean, what other medicine do you know of where people just say, well, gee, I don't need as much. Well, maybe if you're taking an as needed like Valium type drug and you just think like less and you had somebody in your life that was toxic causing anxiety and they leave your life. Sure, you could take less medicine. But physiologically, 
I think that feeding that endocannabinoid system, caring for it, which we know, like you just mentioned, meditation, yoga, healthy um, sleep hygiene, meaning, you know, don't stay up till four o'clock in the morning every night and get up at 7 a.m. That's probably going to stress out your endocannabinoid system and eventually you're going to feel it, right? Mm -hmm. So doing things that feed the endocannabinoid system and including plant medicine is um, crucial. I, I used to say, I haven't said this in a long time, but, you know, back when they took cannabis away from us, is when we started to see more and more illness in human beings, right? Cannabis became highly illegal. You couldn't have it, you couldn't grow it, you couldn't use it. And all of a sudden now we have these horrific conditions, right? Now there's other things that contribute to a processed food, lots of chemicals in our environment and that kind of thing. But at the same time, one wonders if we all were allowed to have some plants in our li in our backyards back in the day, and we included it, would we have had so much illness? So I and I and, and one of the things that's important to remember your endocannabinoids, these compounds that your body makes on demand in response to these challenges, whether they're um, mental challenges or physical challenges, they're made from healthy fat. Back in the 70s and 80s, what were we told not to eat? And you're probably too young to remember, but I remember fat is bad. Fat is bad. All fat is bad because they were like on this kick for cardiac stuff. And I just feel like that was not beneficial for people because we need healthy fat to have healthy endocannabinoid systems. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that that kind of the, the communities around the world have come back to healthy fats in the diet right we're healing from so much of that century and so much of the conditioning with our perspectives you know even when it comes to the medicine it's not like the criminalization of that plant led to it not being used it just meant that it was being used in the shadows it was being used with the guise of of, of shame and guilt and fear and what do those do when we are chronically inhabiting criminality those, those states right yeah yeah and more than that instead of turning to something illegal which a lot of people don't want to do and i totally get that they would turn to other substances now so what's legal alcohol so i had a gentleman in my practice who came in and needed a liver transplant and he said and i said to him you know what what's your issue? You know, like, why are you drinking so much alcohol to the point where you need your, have, you know, liver failure, you need a, you need a transplant. And he said, well, cause it was legal and I couldn't sleep at night. He goes, I would lay awake at night. So I just drank myself silly and would fall asleep. I had another gentleman who came into my practice with massive uh, cirrhosis of the liver. He looked like a skinny, skinny man with his massive belly, like almost like a woman who's going to give birth to triplets. Okay. My age with a walker coming into my office in terrible shape. And I just remember thinking to myself, if he had put a joint to his lips every time as a substitute for him putting alcohol to his lips, he would not be in the situation he was in. And so there's been a lot of harm, um, but we know better now and we have science to support our recommendations. There's a lot of doctors out there that continue to say there's not enough research. There's not enough research. Well, 
I challenge you, go find a study that says a human clinical trial that doesn't have the word safe and well tolerated in it. Mm. Okay. Because I've read a lot of them and guess what? <laughs> they all say, even if it didn't work for whatever the condition was, they used the wrong dose or the wrong combination of cannabinoids or the wrong, whatever entry into the body. Usually at the end, it says safe and well tolerated. <laughs> so that we know, why would we ignore that? How many more times do we have to prove it's safe? Especially Cameron, I'm sure you can agree under medical supervision. Mm -hmm. And that medical supervision is to me so important because there, there needs to be a distinction between um, personal use and, and medical use. Although I would say a lot of the personal use and I'm using personal in lieu of recreational just because I think a lot of personal use is self-medicating. Like why do we use anything is to change our state and inhabit one that we want to feel. We want to feel better. Uh, we medicate with caffeine. We medicate with nicotine. We medicate with food and water and sunshine. And we medicate with the substances we engage with. And so I think that broadening this, this term of what medicating means and pairing it with practices that help us to regulate so that we foster a really healthy relationship with this plant something that is beneficial and serving and and does inspire greater functionality and more beneficial ways of observing the world observing ourselves and engaging with ourselves and the world uh yeah and you know, it's unfortunate. Look, we're still fighting 80 years or even longer of propaganda. That's really hard to undo. And I think that um, the beauty of what we're seeing now, so like in California, we've had cannabis now since 1996. What is that? Four and 23, 27 years. Oh my goodness. It's a long time already. Um, the sky hasn't fallen. We don't have people dying of cannabis use. We do have problems here and there, and it's usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, it's always related to overuse. Mm. And the endocannabinoid system, just like any other system in your body, does not do well with overuse. And so I often will tell people just to take breaks. If you're, you know, if I think their dosing is high, I will tell them flat out, but take breaks. Um, add in other cannabinoids. THC is not the only cannabinoid, right? We have CBD, we have CBG, uh, we have CBDA, we have THCA, we have CBN, we have CBC now. And I don't know if you have it where you live, but these are fairly readily available in the States. I think people don't know what to do with them. So that's where, you know, medical supervision comes in or at least dosing advice. But um, one can f usually find a regimen that can help. And you talk about functionality, and that's one of the biggest things I think that we see is that people just, they feel better, so they just have a better quality of life. And what does that mean? I'm a better worker, I'm a better spouse, I'm a better parent, I'm a better sister, I'm a better kind of just community member, right? And, um, but you know, look, we still have a lot of negatives, like, you know, a lot of people who don't want you on cannabis because it cuts into their bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, 
with more and more research, we're just getting rid of that propaganda every year that goes by. We're learning more and more about it. I mean, one of the biggest indications that seems to be like on um, in the media right now is people who are um, what we're calling the elderly or the very elderly using cannabis for dementia, but also maybe to help with some cognitive function. There's some evidence from the animal literature that very low doses of THC can enhance cognitive function, functioning and may have some anti-aging effects. Wouldn't that be great to do a study on that? Throw in some herbal adaptogens, maybe some lion's mane to facilitate the repair of myelin sheath. Um, lots of healthy fats, some PEA, palmitoylethanolamide, and other yeah. endocannabinoids to help maybe reduce some neuroinflammation. There are so many things that we can layer into these protocols if we are willing to experiment a little bit within these obviously well-tolerated and safe parameters. I think that you know, there's, there's such greater acceptance now, and it's really, it's really cool to see. Um, you know, there have been some prominent figures uh, like, like Olivia Newton-John in Australia. Once she mentioned that she was using cannabis for her cancer, it kind of shifted the perspective of an entire generation of people who went, oh, okay, well, if Olivia's using this, then then I think I might be willing to try that too. And with this greater acceptance, there's more willingness to try it. There's a greater openness to, oh, well, maybe the things that I think mightn't be factual, they mightn't be so true. And I think with this next almost phase or stage that we're heading into, we have this overarching greater acceptance of this plant. There's more use of it within the medical space. And now I think we're, we get to approach some really fun aspects of it. Like there, a lot of people have done the work for this to become legalized, for this to become accessible. And so now what is the work? We have research and understanding our own endocannabinoid system, as well as how these various phytocannabinoids and terpenes and other cannabis constituents play into that. But I like to think about the the adjuvant around how we use this medicine, because historically, I would say for the vast amount of human history, these medicines have been used with shamans, right? Like with people that facilitated the medicine, there was a bit of ritualism involved, there was intention involved. And so my question, I think, is how does intention come into how we use this medicine and how does that change the way that we engage with it and how it engages with us? That's a great question. And I think there's always going to be some people who look at that, who want to have that deeper relationship with the plant. And then there's other people who really kind of, you know, I hate to say it, are just too busy. They don't have time for that. They just want to feel better. <laughs> and <laughs> ultimately, they figure out whether it's inhaling or, you know, taking an edible or making some tincture or taking some tincture, they find what works for them. But the beauty of it is, is that you can have the experience that you want to have with it. And I know so like my colleague, Dr. Justin Sulak, talks about taking like a, a self-inventory before using it. Like, how do you feel? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? Um, are, how do you feel in your body? Are you, do you have discomfort? Are you comfortable? Do you even need it right now? Right? Mm -hmm. And it's to be thoughtful about it, right? And that is the beauty of cannabis is that you can be thoughtful about it and 
Remember, you can take low doses that might give you one type of effect. You could take a medium dose that might dial that effect up. And then you could take a high dose if you just need to kind of shut down and get away. You know, I often tell people, you know, we see people with chronic pain. We have patients with seizures. We have patients with, you know, all kinds of illnesses that they do not get to walk away from. They never get a break from it. It's 24-7. And why is it a bad thing if your medicine takes you away from that for a little bit of time? Why, why do we look at that, especially as healthcare providers? Think about that terminology, right? We're worried about the health of somebody. I know this stuff is safe. And if somebody says to me, you know, I need to, when I come home at night, I just need to kind of use my cannabis so I can step away from my whole day of back pain. You know, somebody's functioning, they're doing well, but they need to step away and they don't get to take their bad back off and leave it at home and go on a cruise. And I think that brings up an important aspect of this plant is that we're still, I think, trying to understand it via the lens of monomolecular medicine and one-to-one interactions. With cannabis and its relation to pain relief, there's something to be said for the emotional modulation to pain and how that kind of alters our relationship with pain so that the pain might still be there, but there's a different way of relating to it. Yes, and I have patients who will say um, that I don't feel the pain anymore. That's great. But other people say, you know, the pain's there, but I've disassociated from it. It just doesn't bother me. And I, this is how I look at that. My analogy is that you're in the path of life. You have this huge boulder sitting in front of you called chronic pain. And cannabis allows you to roll the boulder over. You didn't really get rid of it. It's just out of your way, though, so you can kind of proceed forward on that path. And I know that I've spoken about this analogy with people, and they come back to me and say, wow, that really, you know, resonates with me because I'm not cured, right? I'm not cured of my pain. And although there are some people who are, but you've given me a tool to be able to minimize the impact of that pain on my life. Mm. And that's really important. And and it's it's a i don't think we're walking around telling people especially those of us who you know responsible cannabis physicians we're curing people of everything under the sun that's not what we're doing what we're doing is helping people manage difficult to treat conditions um and not be on a boatload of medicine and not feel the side effects short term and long term of those side effects um in some of my patients with epilepsy, we have, quote, kind of cured them of seizures, meaning they're just seizure-free right now. But my vet, my guess is if we got them off cannabis, they may have seizures. And, you know, I've had patients here and there who, you know, have tried to wean down or just missed a dose or whatever, and they have a breakthrough. So it's not really, we don't really talk about curing. I, we really just, again, talk about managing conditions in a much more um natural um way and for some people it's more effective for others they need to combine with medication 
Um, one of the things that's really interesting too, I don't know if you've come across this in your practice, Cameron, is I think because these compounds are what we call promiscuous, you know, they don't just hit the endocannabinoid system, but they hit a lot of receptors outside of the endocannabinoid, what we call non-cannabinoid receptors, enzymes, transport molecules, and so on. There's lots of things that, especially CBD, but also THC and these other compounds hit, is that I have come across some patients who are not great responders. And I wonder if it's because of cannabis is too promiscuous, meaning it hits too many receptors, right? Mm -hmm. And they really don't need all those receptors hit, maybe just one or two they would like to have. And so I would, I'm really looking forward to the time where we might be able to um, dial in a little bit better for those people who don't get a great result, because I don't think um, that they should be left to like where we say, oh, well, you're not a responder, you know, move on. I think there's with more research, I think we can sort out maybe a, a way for them to use cannabis. That's really fascinating. Yes, these, um, these, because the, we're looking at the, the network effect and we can look at an individual and think about, you know, what is their current state of health? What is their ideal constitution? And what is the roadmap that we take to facilitate this person moving from where they are to where they want to be? And this comes down to their, you know, the vast interplay of this inner pharmacy and how some people are experiencing greater cortisol dumps and maybe more a, cons a consistent release of, of adrenaline and what that does to the nervous system. And some people are really highly dopaminergic, but it easily converts into adrenaline. Some people are very serotonergic and some people are, are lacking in that department. And so we look at this entourage effect and we can consider how we first of all what kind of profiles we look for uh, in relation to the terpenes knowing that those terpenes appear to have these this this network effect upon various neurotransmitter receptors and how we can layer those in to ideally you know soften the edges of that thc experience as well i know that personally my physiology really responds well to limonene, linalool, pinene, beta-caryophyllene, those, that profile right there, it suits my physiology. It lends me the creative functionality that I'm seeking without the um, edginess or almost kind of haziness that can come from THC. And personally, I don't respond to mercine very well, and that can uh, really ramp up anxiety for me. And so once we, th there's an aspect of citizen science that needs to occur here under the umbrella of clinical guidance. And we want people to experiment in a safe way and a mindful way so that they gather the information and the data they need and we need to then make more informed decisions. And it starts as a bit of like this abstract science that becomes more tailored and more refined as we gather more information. Now, in Australia, it's only dispensed through pharmacies currently, and there's no way for patients to smell the plant before it's being prescribed to them. Um, and so there's, you know, we're, we're a little bit inhibited there in terms of tapping into our innate physical intelligence and intuition and instinct. But ideally, I'd like to see an environment in Australia where we can 
expose people to these profiles so that they can smell the aroma. And that's going to be a pretty good indication of whether that profile is suitable to you or not. Like if you respond really well to that aroma, chances are your physiology is going to respond well to that too. And if you come across a profile that goes, oh, no, I don't, I don't like that at all, likely, then that's not really right for you either. And this is, again, the, the, the challenge of fitting this medicine into the monomolecular framework and that it does require experimentation. It, it really does require uh, experimentation. And it's what we have to remember is one size does not fit all, right? It is a truly, it, look, remember your endocannabinoid system is a cellular uh, um, system and it's very hard to measure, right? I can't just go in and say, oh, you know, like I can measure your glucose level and tell you if it's high or low. I mean, it's very hard to measure somebody's endocannabinoid system status. Um, but the, a couple of things that I want to mention is one is the personalization. So I kind of say, you know, you go into, you know, one of the big health food stores and there's like a wall of vitamins. It's like overwhelming. Well, that's like what cannabis is. It's like there's a bazillion different chemovars and there's tons of different ways to take it. And you can be completely overwhelmed like that, but you have to start somewhere. So getting some medical guidance is helpful and you kind of start somewhere and then you, you know, I say in my book, you rule it in or rule it out. It either works or it doesn't work, right? And if it does work for you, you find what your dosing is. You have to, you have to listen to your body. And we live in a world the medical world where we prescribe a medicine and you go home and take the medicine and there's no listening to your body unless you're having awful side effects. You might go, okay, that doesn't go with, I'm not going to live with that. Right. Or if you get a benefit, you don't even think twice about it because potentially there could be something long-term going on that you're not paying attention to, or that's not coming up right away. I think with cannabis, it's, it's very intuitive. You, you either feel better or you don't, and it may take time. Cannabis is, you know, a, 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 a um, herbalist I know has always said, can't, plant medicine nudges you in the right direction. Uh, pharmaceuticals hit you over the head, okay? So there's a big difference between how your physiolo physiology yeah. responds, right? That you, you, uh, you get that. But one of the things that I always say to people is that if you, you're not going to hit it out of the park on the first try. It's just not going to happen. There's too many options now, which is great. But at the same time, what we need is we need that time to be able to start with that, quote, wall of products and dial in to your personal needs. I've had people come in and say, my friend came to see you and has the same condition as me and I want that same exact thing. And then I say, okay, that's not really how it works, but they're insistent. And I say, okay, go ahead and try that. And then they say, that didn't work for me. And I said, yeah, because even though we, with cannabis, we don't treat the condition, we treat the human, we treat the patient, we treat the person, right? And everybody is an N of one. If I could tell you, let's say, for instance, you know, let's just say, for instance, Dravet syndrome, which is a rare, a devastating pediatric genetic severe epilepsy. I've got a whole bunch of kids in my practice with Dravet. And if it was as easy as all these kids should take this dose of this medicine, well, my life would be so easy, Cameron. I would just be like, okay, here you go. You know, see you in a few months. But that's not how it works. They're all unique individuals. They happen to have one 
genetic mutation in common, but the rest of them, including their endocannabinoid system and including all their other receptor systems where cannabis interacts, are all very different. And if we don't start off the conversation recognizing that, then we're going to continue with this kind of what I say is nonsense of the medical community, especially, and maybe the pharmaceutical community trying to fit cannabis into this box that it doesn't fit in. No, cannabis doesn't have right angles. And, yeah. And have, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we, so much interpersonal variability. And I love that point of they have one genetic mutation in common. And we use that to then categorize them all un, into that box. And that's just not a realistic way of of utilizing this medicine. Now, have you come into contact with much genetic testing for ECS variability and, and, and certain gene markers and expressions? Well, so I have seen some of the tests and I here and there I have patients who do decide to do that kind of testing. And in my experience, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it isn't. Um, I'd like to share with you, so I have published a couple of papers over the last few years on using salivary biomarkers. So meaning you collect saliva and we look at the chemicals, basically biomarkers in saliva. And I'm working with a company that had established that some of these biomarkers, which by the way, just a fancy term for a chemical that can be measured in the saliva that is part of a pathway of a, you know, basically we're, we're um, bags of, we're like skin and chemicals. That's what we are. <laughs> so we're made up of tons and tons of chemicals and you can measure some of these chemicals and they reflect chemical pathways. So uh, like you were talking about one neurotransmitter can turn into another, right? So these are just chemical pathways and we have many of them. And we measured these salivary biomarkers in children with autism, we measured them in the morning before they uh, took their medical cannabis and then a couple hours later after they took their medical cannabis and we were able to show that cannabis uh, improved or caused those biomarkers that were very much out of the standard deviation from the mean, very far out, and homeostatically move them towards the physiologic mean, meaning if the biomarker was very low, it moved up with cannabis. If the biomarker was very high, it moved down with cannabis treatment, which kind of proves that whole idea of homeostasis. Uh, we had no biomarkers that responded to cannabis by getting further away from the mean. Wow. Which is fascinating, right? And so we've published these, um, these papers. We had two that we published, um, which I can share with you so we can share with listeners. But we have another one coming out where we actually took the data and had uh, someone take a look at it through the eyes of artificial intelligence and machine learning just to kind of look at the data a different way. And we found some really interesting things. And we found one thing that I, I, I think I can talk about since the paper was accepted. Anyway, um, we found that like CBG exists like in this continuum of these cannabinoids between THC and CBD. So what does that mean? It means that CBD seems to have these overlapping effects 
from CB with CBD and THC, which by the way, are kind of antagonists of each other, right? If you understand the physiology, they, they are somewhat antagonistic, although they work well together. Um, but CBG is in the middle and it had some overlapping effects from each one. And this was, we are not the first ones to report this. I think we're the second ones to report it. Somebody else reported in their literature and then we were able to find this in our data and report on it. So this is kind of how we build on this. But I find that the genetics can be helpful if you have it, but it doesn't always predict what's going on in the human being that's right in front of you. Whereas the salivary biomarkers actually tell you what is going on in that human at this moment. And I find that to be very helpful. And so, you know, in our population of kids with autism that were being treated with cannabis, we were able to show this incredibly positive impact on these chemical pathways. And by the way, the chemical pathways, what did they reflect? So they reflect neuronal dysfunction, aggression, uh, inflammation, some bioenergetics, um, the endocannabinoid system dysfunction. So really interesting. And we're at the very beginning of this research, uh, hoping to you know do more studies and, and get this robust data that that will really give us the ability to use the biomarkers to help measure the impact and maybe dial in on, okay, so I have a patient on this cannabinoid compound and their biomarkers all corrected except for the one on, let's say, I don't know, neuronal dysfunction. Okay, what can I now add to the regimen to help address that, right? So we need tools to be able to help measure, especially in the most vulnerable patients, you know, kids with seizures, adults with dementia, my patients who are nonverbal with autism. Um, and that would be really huge, you know, if we could have the ability to measure objectively as well as subjectively. That's incredible. Um, and, you know, keying into that adaptogenic response where it's always going closer to the mean. Yeah, it was kind of amazing to see it on, like to actually see it on paper, because it's what you envision when you read and learn about the endocannabinoid system. And the more you, the more time you spend with it, right? Whether it's I'm reading research or I'm dealing with patients, you get this real sense of understanding. And then though, you make the assumption, okay, this is what's happening in this human's body. But to actually see the results on paper just, you know, kind of was really very exciting. It felt like a big discovery for me. Uh, and, and, and it is. Um, how exciting and special to be able to reflect that in the data because it's, you know, when, when practitioners say, oh, there's not enough evidence, it's like, well, firstly, I don't think you've looked. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence, but also the kind of parameters we are using to determine what is and is not evidence need to change because this is not a medicine that has biochemical uniformity. It is not a medicine that has a clear standardized dose. It is not a medicine that has clear and objective molecular pathways and mechanisms of action. It is not a medicine that can be studied the same way that we have studied things. And there is a vast amount of of intuitive and community-derived anecdotal evidence. And while anecdotal seems to be a word that is so vilified in the scientific community, 
it's real human experience. And until we really figure out just how to establish these trials and this research, we need to, I think, broaden our perspective and be willing to engage in this scientific discussion, practitioner by practitioner, patient by patient, collecting data and contributing and collaborating in a way that puts it all together. And I love as well the integration of AI. For years, I've I've said that because of this vast network effect within cannabis and just its its array of constituents and how that interacts with us, the sheer complexity of it all is something that it, it, it kind of boggles the mind. It boggles my mind. And AI to me is something that will be a really critical tool in tracing these pathways and these interactions and discerning insights that really almost require quantum computing, the ability to see this vast interconnectedness and the almost the mathematical equation that comes from that. And then, of course, distilling it Absol into care. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I'm not always clear when somebody reaches out to me and says, you know, my child had this response or I had this response. Sometimes it's not clear. So any research that's going to help any type of objective measurement, because the vast majority of people who do well with cannabis are going to do well and, you know, they're going to try different things and they're going to settle in on their, on their regimen, right? And they're going to listen to their body and sort it out. And I think that these tools are very important for some of the more challenging type cases. I don't feel that every single person needs to have expensive testing beforehand before using cannabis because, you know, well, first of all, I've been practicing for 15 years without extensive testing in it. <laughs> we have a lot of success. Um, so we don't necessarily need that. But certainly, I think to help personalize the experience and improve the experience for patients, um, it's just nice to have some tools because right now, really, not a lot of tools exist. Um, and so that's why I'm so excited to be participating in that research. And it's interesting because research doesn't only apply to autism, it can apply to chronic pain, uh, neuropathy, nerve pain, and potentially some other conditions, dementia, and so on. So, you know, we still have, we're still in the infancy. Um, but the reality is, is that you know, for humans, I think cannabis is a uh, natural um, uh, part of our world and to ignore it is just, it's to our own detriment. Mm. Absolutely. Now, Bonnie, before we wrap up, I would like to ask you one more question. Where do you see this medicine heading? What kind of innovation would you like to see in this space, what would help you the most as a practitioner? Well, so there's like the global acceptance would be nice so that mm -hmm. um, there are not people suffering. I get emails from all over the world, which just breaks my heart that I can't help everybody, but I'm only one person. So I'd like to, what I'd like to see is the medical community um, start to accept cannabis to learn about it, first of all, and then accept it and get you know, and, and, and embrace it as this incredible tool that it is. 
Um, and then some other things I'd like to see is just, you know, in California, it's too expensive. It's, it's very limiting, uh, limiting people's ability to use it. Um, doesn't need to be that expensive. Our, our state got a little aggressive with the taxes and it's really not been beneficial to people who are true uh, patients, much less anybody who wants to use it. You know, if you're really sick, you can't grow it in your backyard to lower your cost. If you're really sick, you're busy trying to get well and, you know, having to grow plants for your own medicine can be challenging, even though some of my patients do it. Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm have to be honest. I'm just kind of, um, it, it's 27 year experiment in my state. And, uh, like I said, the sky hasn't fallen and a lot of people have gotten off opioids and a lot of people have found, uh, better quality of life. And I just wish the medical community would be a little bit more open to it. So that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I'm hoping for is that, um, there's just more acceptance. It's just so silly that we're, it, let's just, and, and I say this a lot, just let's just do the research so we know what it helps, what it might not help with, what, you know, who might respond better, who might not respond, and just so we can understand it. I don't understand why that's so difficult. Look, I think every conversation we have like this uh, takes us further and further, and the more transparency and openness and honestly enthusiasm that the practitioners in this space bring to the space that right there is is what will drive this this innovation because at the end of the day i don't know a single practitioner out there that doesn't want to help and once they see that this is a really viable option for helping to transform the health within our communities um, then we will start to see this this greater acceptance and delivery of this care. I, I we are all thankful for the work that you have done. It's incredible, and we don't underestimate. I think the the battle that it has been to even get where we are. So, thank you for contributing to this space. Well, thank you, Cameron, and I appreciate what you do too, and. Uh, educating patients is the key and you know remember what we always say knowledge is power and so when you have that education when you understand that you have the system in the body that most doctors aren't even talking about or acknowledging um, that is not a good sign so we have to just keep spreading the word and doing it in a very responsible um, way and I think that's how you and I both uh, do it so you know kudos to you Kudos to you. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, for anybody listening, uh, Bonnie's book will be in the description of this podcast episode, Cannabis is Medicine. If you are wanting to enter the space and you are wanting to advocate for patients or yourself, you are wanting to contribute to mankind's reparation with plant medicines and the reemergence of a healthy relationship, I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, dive in. Let it. Let me know what you think. It. There are so many conversations and implications that come from the knowledge within that book, and uh, it is a a massive benefit to anybody in this space that that cares. So, Bonnie, thank you so much for your time, and this podcast will be out in a few days. Thanks, Cameron. Hope to get to see you in person sometime. Likewise. 
Thanks, Barney.